0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. Sometimes important things are hidden from us. There can be a good reason for it. Hi, Takumbudzi here, with another episode in Earshot Season, The Other Me. We're about to spend time with a man of many parts, of many others.
1: Right, let's go.
0: Jim Everett, philosopher, fisherman, 81-year-old master's candidate, activist, poet, soldier, filmmaker. But at 16, Jim discovered a hidden part of himself.
1: It was the first time I'd come into the port to stay long enough to meet anybody. And I met one of my cousins. They took me down to Yellow Beach. All the Aboriginal community mob down there camped in under the tea tree with fires going and everything. And as soon as I saw them, I realised that we were Aboriginal. Of course, what else?
0: Instead of walking away from that discovery, with all its potential pain and struggle, Jim embraced it. He's learnt a lot since then. And his life, trying to share it with young Indigenous Tasmanians. Producer Nicole Steinkey travelled to Lutruwita, Tasmania, to spend time with Jim. Many people told her, "You don't come away from him unchanged."
1: <laughs> God. We do break laws. We're coming along here, and when we get to the end of this road here, we're basically at Kutulima. I can be charged for even being here. When I was bailed out, I was told I was not to be back on this land again. Not that it stops me.
2: There are some people who make you want to live more fully. Accept challenges and ignore society's limits. Jim Everett, or Alina Minamata, is one of them. At 81, he's lived longer than anyone ever has in his family, and he's done it as a risk-taker and a poet.
1: Itself ...in the deeper waters where Ria will taste its blood of life, to know only too well a memory of creation in its bloodlines and the arteries of water where the spirit cannot journey, yet knows its bloodline has touched all life in the many strong places of country away in quiet places.
2: What is this land?
1: This is on the Jordan River, just on the northern suburbs area of Hobart. And the Brighton Bypass was a big project the state government put into gear, and we protested.
2: It was 2011 and the Aboriginal community was protesting because there'd been occupation of Kutalina for more than 40,000 years. Archaeologists employed by the state government agreed, but still, the bulldozers came.
1: So this is Kutalina here, right in front of us. A paddock, and this is where the archaeological digs were undertaken, and my son stopped the bulldozers here and held the camp here for two years was costly for him. He lost his partner and as well as never being employed as an Aboriginal heritage officer again because he he's the only ever Aboriginal heritage officer in Tasmania who ever stopped the bulldozers. No one will employ a heritage officer who stops the bulldozers, will they? I was arrested four times, Aaron was arrested five times, many others got arrested about the same, and eventually we were kicked off the site and not allowed back on.
2: After two years of resistance, the protesters were slowly being defeated. Jim's home is on Aboriginal-owned Cape Barren Island, or Trawana. It sits in Bass Strait, between the northeastern tip of Lutruwita, Tasmania, and Trawana's larger cousin, Flinders Island. Banned from the protest site, Jim had gone back to the islands. He was on the remote tip of Flinders when he got the call to return to Kutalina, The protesters had lost. The road would go ahead.
1: So they'd keep busy and they got me off Flinders Island and down here in time for the next morning so I could hold the healing ceremony.
0: That's despite bail conditions which ordered them to stay away. Fellow protesters formed a mob around them as police looked on
1: explained to everybody that the healing ceremony was for this land here, for our Aboriginal community, and for all the non aboriginal community people in this area, even the ones that were against us and spat at us and called us racist names, because they needed healing. And I said, if we don't heal them, then the whole place is not properly healed. I've got a photo of my son, Aaron, and the pain in his face is just terrible.
2: So, okay, there's a locked gate, Jim.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, they locked it. So we'd have to climb over the fence if you want to climb over the fence. When we was doing our healing ceremony, the fire was somewhere over here. Let's just go and have a look and see if we can see. Just watch out for rocks.
2: Jim's activism goes back a long way.
1: Kick a rock and break your big toe.
3: I'm not quite sure what the year was, but... One of the most impactful memories of Uncle Jim was the year that the Dalai Lama came to Tasmania, Lutwita.
2: Jim's niece in culture, Ruth Langford.
3: And this was a time where in Tasmania, the systemic racism was rife.
2: Ruth is a Yorta Yorta woman born in Lutwita.
3: She has cultural responsibilities here and has known Jim all her life. And so the Dalai Lama was coming to town. He was being hosted at the Big Flash Hotel. And Uncle Jimmy, in all of his glory, walked into the foyer, opened his arms, and said, Ya which was an Aboriginal welcome. And he claimed that space not only for himself, his family, his boys that were with him, but for all of us, he was an Aboriginal man meeting a spiritual leader, global leader, and Uncle Jimmy met him as a sense of equality. We are all related and I am here opening my arms to you. And that's what Uncle Jimmy has laid the tracks for our reality, where previously our reality was very constricted to what the colonising construct was saying who we are. At that time we were half-caste, we were primitive, we were set for extinction, we were the deficit and all of our problems were... Because of who we were. And he showed us that not only is that not true, but this is the pathway to re empowering ourselves. It's about the way that we act and relate to other people.
2: On the move again, Jim and I are taking the small plane from the Lutruwita mainland to the Aboriginal community of Truwana, or Cape Barren Island, where he's had a home for 20 years.
1: So yeah, a bit of a run through my living room. So this table here with the television on it, that's the table out of the molly, my sailboat. When my boat went up on the rocks, I got what I could out of it, and that's. The
2: it's a comfortable the place. Molly. His one-time partner, Denise, who runs the island, calls it a museum.
1: So there's there's my cray boat up there. That's when I was a fisherman. This is my mum. I look more like my mum. She's an old mutton burner. that's for sure. Mum and dad were both birters.
2: So what are they doing here, your parents?
1: Having a beer, that's what they're doing.
2: (laughs) These days, Jim opens up ways of being for other people, holding healing ceremonies and spreading his arms in welcome to the Dalai Lama. But he was once a little boy in Gippsland whose mother told him to tell him you're Maori.
1: Mum wouldn't let us out without our shoes on because running around barefoot, that's what Aboriginal kids do and we don't want them to see that we're Aboriginal or anything like that. Tell them you're Maori, yeah. Because we have Maori bloodline was an excuse. And we knew it was an excuse. That's the thing. She, when she'd say, I oh, tell him you're Maori, we knew that she wasn't telling us that we're Maori. She was telling us that's an excuse she could give these white people when they start sort of having a go at us about being coloured kids or whatever as they termed us.
2: But Jim and his brother and sister didn't know that they were Tasmanian Aboriginal. To keep the family safe, it wasn't spoken of nor the reason why the family had moved away from the islands.
1: Well, Dad couldn't accept that he was Aboriginal because he'd been conditioned so much and he'd grown up looking like a white person that he could get away with it. So he couldn't accept it, even though his bloodline, through his father, James Everett, to his uh, grandmother, Betsy Maitai, she married the Maori fella. And Betsy's mum was Manly daughter, Wapiti.
2: If you start reading the colonial records of the forced removal and killing of the aboriginal people of Lutruita, you soon come across Manalagena's name. He was a clan leader, a warrior and a clever man, who through his four daughters and two sons is a direct ancestor of the majority of aboriginal people in Tasmania today, including Jim.
1: Miss Manalagena, up there, of course. So this is a picture of the old Cape Barren Island Football Club. My father was 16 and he was part of this football team. This would have been taken in 1929. That's my father there.
2: Can you imagine a life without family? (laughs) No, God.
1: (laughs) No, no, I, I couldn't imagine it. Even though we were sort of a cuddly family... I'm talking about the whole extended family. When I was in the army and I came out to Flinders Island I was on leave, went on leaving to go back to the army. Like the old man was I could see he was really emotional and like shake hands. Shake hands. See your son.
2: <laughs> After raising their children in Gippsland and later St Kilda, his parents had returned to the islands. Meanwhile, Jim had been living an adventurous life, trying all sorts of things, including the army, and overall, the world had treated him well. But now, he was back in the place where he was born, Flinders Island.
1: That's where I sort of got to know racism a little bit more. But I had a girlfriend who was uh, Danish, who lived in Melbourne, and she came home when I came home from my first leave. So we went to a dance in Whitemark on Flinders Island, the main town. And when it came to the barn dance, as each partner's changed, the women was to come to be my next dance partner. They just walked off the floor, yeah. This is in Whitemark on Flinders Island, yeah.
2: The place where you were born.
1: Yeah, yeah. As they came to dance with me, they'd just walk off the floor.
2: So you'd never had anything like this happen before?
1: Nah, no, not like that. So I walked off the floor then because I could see, well, this is just not going to work like this, is it? (laughs) So I just walked off the floor and sat down.
2: How did you make sense of it?
1: Well, I um, just understood that they didn't like us because we're blackfellas. You just understood that, so... You can't do anything about it. Like, not then, you know, um, I wasn't very into politics or anything. And you can't sort of hit out. So, you know, I just sat down because sort of myself, well, all right.
2: I was just thinking about when you were a little kid and your parents had moved away from Flinders Island because of the racism. Yeah. And you were living in Gippsland and... I remember reading in your thesis, I think it was, about you earwigging, listening yeah. in to the adults talking.
1: Yeah. Well, this is what they wouldn't talk about in front of us, and that was sort of like who was quarter caste and who was half caste and who was related to who. And sometimes they'd be talking about Truganini or Bill Lanny or people that were killed in the past in the colonial system. But they wouldn't talk about that in front of the kids. It wasn't like they talked about that often either, but sometimes they'd sort of be in there together with the door closed and have a few beers and start opening up a bit, yeah.
2: And you'd listen.
1: Yeah, 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 which only just confused me anyway. You didn't work it out really. It was just sort of like, oh, righto. So anyway, we're not white fellas. Okay, got that bit.
2: Triwana, or Cape Barren Island, is small. It's isolated and austerely beautiful, with wild, empty beaches and windswept, stunted trees under immense skies. It's often blowing a gale.
1: You've got to be prepared for it. Right, let's go.
2: We're going on a tour of the island in Jim's old jalopy. It's
1: a jumpstart to keep
2: There's no handle on the door, Jim. Yeah, no. All the ends are broken on this car. None work from the outside.
1: So, yeah, whew. No, all right, though.
2: I was just thinking about how you performed the healing ceremony. How did you learn what it is to perform a healing ceremony because that's it's such a long way from what you were taught when you were a kid
1: yeah well I've been to lots of different parts of Australia seen different ceremonies carried out learned a bit of the old recorded language and then you just don't learn ceremony you've got to understand who you are with country And then you can put those things together. And it's really just a matter of stepping up to the plate and say, right, I'm gonna do this ceremony and these are the things I need to say. From the time that I was a kid, joined the army when I was 20 and didn't know much about being Aboriginal, come out of the army, get a $25,000 loan from the Australian government's Aboriginal Loans Commission, buy me fishing boat and go fishing and then from there get involved in politics and then learn all this other stuff that I never did know, it puts everything together, so that when it came to doing a ceremony, well, basically it's all there.
2: Most people have different selves. Jim's just seem more radically different than most. Poet, soldier, fisherman, mentor to young creatives, He says his years as a scallop fisherman were the most satisfying of his life, but he gave it up when he realized the damage it was doing to the environment. Instead, he took a desk job as Tasmania's first state liaison officer in Aboriginal affairs. Then he moved to Sydney to help set up the ABC's Aboriginal TV unit and traveled the nation visiting Aboriginal communities. From there, he kept moving he sat on country and protested with First Nations people around the world, sucking in knowledge all the way.
1: I didn't gum boots.
2: But he still has a strong relationship with the sea.
1: Oh well, I mean I've sort of basically grew up on the sea. You've got to learn to respect the sea. And you've got to know your own limits. Let's get out of here. I'm starting to go in. It's like sinking into bloody.
2: The first official handover of Crown land to an Aboriginal community in Tasmania occurred on Triwana in 2005. The community runs the place power, water, roads, housing, school, cemetery, the lot.
1: at and his wife Rosalie died um, earlier this year. We had a lot of deaths. Elliot Maynard, so he was only young. About the same age as Jamie. Your son? Yep, Jamie. Then Sharon, one of my cousins, she died after our, uh, Jamie. They're taking a while to settle down, these. Elliot's been here for a few years now. But they're all, say, about the same age, in the early 50s. All alcohol-related problems. But yeah, this is Jamie's grave here. So what I want to do with that is put a big rock here, a really big rock that'll go down into the ground and then cover this with stones around that area and then shells and small stones in the interior of it. But that'll still settle a lot more yet. Graves everywhere. This painting up here looks awful, doesn't it? It's sort of scary.
2: We're back in Jim's home, where the walls are covered by photos and artwork by friends, extended family, and this one.
1: My son painted that, Jamie, he painted that when he was in jail. That's how their heads would go, I suppose, when they're in jail. He a really good son, but I suppose his mind sort of conjured up this image of fire and demons and stuff.
2: What was he jailed for?
1: Oh, in jail for burglary, you know, he used to burgle shops and stuff. He never burgled private homes. He said, no, we don't steal from private people, but we go and pinch from the rich.
2: Your son Jamie that you mm. lost sounds like a really interesting person.
1: Yeah, he was. He was free. He lived just a free life. Work wasn't his idea of how you live. He held some jobs and he used to go fishing. He was really good on fishing boats. But I'm talking about his later years, he, he sort of got out of work because his health wasn't the best anyway. But he, he'd show up when people had their problems, somebody died. He'd be there with the dears at the funeral services and stuff like this and And he'd visit those people all the time. He's always kept in touch personally.
2: Where did he live?
1: Well, he lived with me the last seven months of his life but prior to that he was living in shared rooms and sometimes he was homeless.
2: I think you told me before that sometimes he'd live in a cave,
1: or...? Oh, when he was about 13, 14 onwards, he had this dog, Toby, who was a big German shepherd. He and Toby would go up and live in the caves up in Kenunye, Mount Wellington. That's how he lived, that was him. And he didn't have much in life, really, because he never had much need for it. Yeah, he'd just go and do his own thing. <laughs> They can pop up
2: anyway. Jamie was the third of Jim's sons to die. The other two weren't his blood children, but the sons of women he had long relationships with. The first returned from being a soldier in Afghanistan. He hung himself. The second died from emphysema and alcohol. Jim's son, Jamie, from alcohol a bit of emphysema and heart disease. But Jim says those are only the physical causes.
1: Yeah, the Aboriginal community, generally right across the country, really has these problems. Generational trauma and and stuff like that, it exists. I still feel that I have some of that trauma at times. And I get really frustrated and and do or say silly things. If you're still colonised and... You've got a history that you know and you know your family back into those times when the Colonials were out openly shooting Aboriginal people. You feel that pretty hard sometimes and it hurts. It's a sadness, It's very, very sad feeling. And then you get angry. You get angry then. At times I write some stuff that's pretty angry you then i going to go back and sort of edit it later on when I'm feeling a bit better mind. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's there.
3: Some of the hardest times in my life has been around my own question of identity and how I am in the world.
1: Oh, that nice shark cooking up there.
3: And those times where I've been able to walk on the beach with Uncle Jim, listening to his stories...
1: Actually, flake, or shark... It's a really good meat. And it's good curry, too. It's a really good one to curry.
3: Or sitting by a fire. Or, you know, even the best is when you're in his kitchen and he's just baked bread. Or he pulls it out from underneath his cupboard. His black sauce, his Worcestershire sauce. If you've got one of those, you know that that's pure gold. He is completely generous, but he is one of those wisdom keepers that... Shapes the world.
2: What did you used to eat when you were a kid?
1: Oh well, I mean, like at Sassafras Creek down to East Gippsland, we'll, we used to go and get freshwater clams or freshwater mussels out of there, including freshwater crayfish. That'll do that. Yo, Yo, mate. I'll
0: catch you for later. Righty o.
2: There are a lot of people whose lives and stories interweave with Jim's, like Buck Brown. He's part of the extended family that Jim gives his Worcestershire <laughs> sauce to. Yeah. Tell me about Dave. this fellow over here. Dave. Yeah, about this fellow
3: here.
1: A
2: minute,
1: you? About you a Well, I've known Jim most of my life.
2: Are you related?
1: I well, certainly am. We're related. I watched Jimbo who's a fisherman around the, around the islands here. I've done a lot of travelling around Tasmania with Jimbo. Of course, I worked in cultural heritage for years and Aboriginal Land Council, Jim was the manager there, so I managed to work in the bush with both Jimmy's
2: sons, Jamie and Aaron. Knowing Jim most of my life, he's one of my best mates, so he's a great bloke, yeah. (laughs) And this island, what sort of a place is it? Oh, it's paradise. It is, really is. I grew up here.
1: the political poems, this is, I reckon, one of the best I've ever written. And So, On the Road with Buck. One day I was driving with Buck Brown along the coast and we was talking about white cows on our land till the talk got real intense and I wouldn't want to boast, but we worked it all out from the start right to the end. Now, it's easy enough to see, well, it is to you and me, why whitefellas do their thing wrong way round. Their old men made a structure with God being he, so that the men had all the power on the ground. Then they made their people's minds. This is what my life was, it's just another story. Everybody's got all these stories. And I sometimes think to myself, why do not think that my story is any more interesting and special than anyone else's story? It's amazing. So
2: what were you saying a moment ago? I forget. <laughs>
1: Already. So, do I. so take heed, old co, that we do our thing in a strong and pure way. And we always live with the way she has made for us to grow. And hold no sorrow and shed no tears for the way they end their day. Because we told them for 200 years, but they didn't want to know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Jim Everett. And Jim's willingness to get arrested for a righteous cause hasn't slowed. This episode was produced by Nicole Steinke with sound engineer John Jacobs. And next time on Earshot, it used to be said that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. But what if you've been to both planets? Max is a trans man and he's got a lot of fascinating observations about the world of men having once been a woman i'm tukunbuzi catch you next time for the other me
3: you've been listening to an abc podcast discover more great abc podcasts live radio and exclusives
0: on the abc listen app